Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We've been talking about that when it comes to discipleship in the last few decades, our country has really been all about bigger, faster, louder. And we tend to evaluate that way. Uh, you know, if, if church is bigger, we assume it's succeeding. If things are happening faster, we assume it's doing it well. And there's something about being louder and having power and, res, you know, being able to, to speak your voice across large amounts of people that, again, just like bigger and faster sounds good for discipleship, it seems like we must be reaching more people. And yet what we've been doing the last few weeks is taking kind of a radical look at the mission and recognizing that for some reason... God seems to prefer smaller over bigger when it comes to a lot of his ministries and a lot of his missions from Gideon, where he weeded out the army to the things that it seems like work best in discipleship, where it comes down to the smaller communities rather than the larger ones. We talked then the week after that about how God seems to preference so often in terms of discipleship slower over faster, that what we're actually called to do is to teach everybody everything that Jesus teaches us. And we're supposed to do that in the context of constantly learning from Jesus because he's always with us, which makes that process by its definition slower and lifelong and not something that can just happen quickly because I can't teach you everything Jesus has taught me in one day or two days or a week or a year or even a whole lifetime because every day he teaches me more. Tonight, I'm going to propose in the same way that smaller is better than bigger, even though it doesn't feel like it, and slower is better than faster, even though it doesn't feel like it. I'm going to propose that softer is better than louder. And I want to start just by sharing a story with you. Now, this is a story that I've shared many times uh, in many different pulpits uh, about Elijah. And I've shared this story a lot. Well, it's just a great story, but I've shared it a lot partly because it talks about Elijah's depression. And depression isn't something that we talk about a lot in the churches. So I share it from that angle a lot to let people know it's okay. Even Elijah was depressed and God is sympathetic and empathetic and not impatient with your depression. But that's not the point tonight. I want to share this story tonight to think of this differently. I want us to see why Elijah got depressed, because I think that is very instructive to us. So instead of looking about how God deals with depression tonight, I just want to talk about why did Elijah suddenly feel this depression? Because I think it is instructive when it comes to our tendency to use louder as both a method and an evaluation of whether we're being successful. 1 Kings 18, 16 through 17 introduces us to three characters in the story. It says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So just very quickly, who are these people? Ahab is the king of Israel. He's a bad king. He doesn't worship the, the true God. He worships idols and false gods, and he's just an evil man. And he's married to a woman named Jezebel, and they're kind of equal partners, as near as I can tell, in this evil work. Obadiah is the, like Ahab's main man. He's like the servant that works for Ahab that carries out his wishes. And Elijah is the prophet of the time who is at odds with Ahab because Elijah's calling people to worship the true God and Ahab's calling people to worship these false gods. And so that's the main characters here. So we have, it says, so what happens is Elijah contacts Obadiah and says, I want to meet with Ahab, which is a gutsy move because Ahab wants to kill Elijah. So Elijah tells Obadiah, I want to meet with Ahab. And that's where we come into this story. It says, so Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you troubler of Israel? And that tells us that they're obviously their relationship. 
but it actually tells us a little bit about Elijah too. So let me, let me give you a little bit of a picture of why are we talking about Elijah today when we talk about light, louder and why do we want to, what does it mean that he's the troubler of Israel? Well, the reason I want to talk about him tonight is because in many ways he's the poster child for louder. If you wanted to find scriptural justification for louder being the way God works, Elijah is a really good candidate for that. Elijah is famous and powerful. He's able to say, I want to meet with the king, and the king actually meets with him. That's a pretty big deal. You have to be a certain amount of loudness in the culture to get that kind of attention. Elijah is brash. Elijah is a troubler of Israel, right? He's, he's, sometimes we hear people say that's why louder is good, because we, we shouldn't just kind of let things be the way they are. We should be stirring things up, and there's truth to that. Jesus troubled Israel too. Jesus troubled people sometimes. So there's something beneficial about stirring people up. Sometimes today Christians say that's our job. We're to make trouble in the world. We should stir things up. There's too much, some people say, of just laying down and kind of surrendering to the, to the disrespect, to the aspersions and the ideas to the world. And Elijah is that kind of person that many people want the church to be. He's famous. He's powerful. He's brash. He does big things. And if you pick on him, he calls fire down from heaven to destroy you. He's hard to miss. And he's impossible to ignore. And on one level, of course, that sounds good. We don't want people to ignore the church. The church has the message of life. We don't want people to miss us. We don't want to be overlooked. It would be nice if people respected the church enough to hear our words, to respond to them. Power just sounds like influence. So why shouldn't the church have power and have a loud voice to influence more people for God? So like bigger and faster at first glance, it sounds good. But let's follow this story through of Elijah a little bit because we'll see some things that I think both Elijah already knew, even though he seems to be the poster child for louder, but also some things I think he learned, which would be valuable for us as well. The story goes on. He says, and I'm not going to put the whole story on the screen. So this is like re reading story time. You'll have to listen. He says, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at, the Lord, at Jezebel's table. That's the king's table. That's his wife. Now, this is interesting. This gives you the sense of how loud and powerful Elijah is. The king meets with him. And what does Elijah do? He gives him a command. <laughs> he says, go gather people together. And we'll meet with them. Ahab's willing to do this because he's hoping this will backfire for Elijah. But notice also what Elijah's doing. He wants to do something very big and very public. He says, I want you to get all of the prophets, 450, whatever, get them all. I'll meet with them all. Notice, by the way, that Elijah understands that bigger is not better. Notice that right here, he's not intimidated by the size of the prophets of Baal. He sees himself as one and them as many, and he understands that God works through small, and he's not worried about that. He gets that. And so, and we're going to see later that on some level, he understands louder isn't better. But I want you to see right now, this is the kind of power that he has. He says to the king, I want to meet with him. I want you to gather everybody. If he could simulcast this, he would, right? This is a big live event. This is a live television event. We're going to go up on the mountain and he's going to prove to everyone who God is. It's going to be the loudest demonstration that Elijah's God is right that they've seen. And I think what he's doing is what God's calling him to do. I don't think that's at odds here. 
So Ahab agrees. Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went on before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Elijah's like, look, I'm going to have this big demonstration. It's time to choose. Nothing wrong with that message. It's time to choose. Who are you with? Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now, before we go on, I want to let you know, I'm going to give you a glimpse into the future of what happens, the part we may not even read. God indicates that this is just nonsense. This statement by Elijah is not from God. It's patently false. In fact, God reveals to Elijah later that God has protected many other prophets of God. So when Elijah says, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, he is overreaching and overstating. But I want to mention it only because it does play into our ideas of power and fame. I think one of the problems with our, our desire to be important, to be powerful, to be famous, either as individuals or as a church, is we seem to think we've got this idea in our head that to be worthy, to be valuable, to be really important, you have to be unique. How many times is that even the message we're given? You are special. You're the only one. You're the only one like you, says the big purple dinosaur. But if, you're, if everyone's special, what does that mean? <laughs> we have this notion that being unique, being the only one who can do something is what makes us valuable. If anyone else can do the thing that we can do, we think it's not that important. It's not that valuable if I do something other people can do. But isn't that weird? Because what if what the world needs is for a bunch of people to do the same thing? Oh, <laughs> well, we don't like that. We get this idea in our head that true power, true fame, true value comes from being the only one of God's prophets left. The only true one. Look, I think what we're doing at Focus is, is unusual. I think what we're doing is a little radical. But I pray to God it's not unique. I certainly hope we're not the only ones out here doing something that I think is really good for discipleship. I don't want to be alone. And I suspect we're not. I suspect our worth doesn't come from the fact that we're the only ones in all of history who figured out how to do church. Because <laughs> if it does, you should go somewhere else because I'm not that smart. It's interesting even in our political world, I was thinking about this. You know, we've got two president, we've got two candidates that look like they're heading towards being our candidates. I'm, I'm hoping not personally, but but we've got President Biden and we've got former President Trump, and and they're they're certainly in the news all the time. It's interesting. Just in the last two weeks, I heard them both say the same thing. They're opposed. They're indifferent about a lot of things, but both of them said, "I'm the only one." They did. They both said they're the only one. And they, they finished that off differently, but the essence for both of them was, I'm the only one who can save the country. I am the only one. Well, first of all, we've had a lot of presidents. Do we even believe that's actually true? Secondly, the, 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 the data tells us that 60% of our country, 60 to 70% of our country, doesn't want either of these candidates to run. That's what poll after poll tells us. So I think most of our country doesn't even think they're the only ones. We don't even think they're the best ones. But we force our presidential candidates to say things like that, don't we? 
We say, why should you be president instead of someone else? Just once, it would be kind of nice to hear somebody say, actually, there's probably a lot of people that could do the job. <laughs> but here's what I'll bring to it. <laughs> but they don't. They, they make this impression that no one else in the world can do it, even though we're up in the 40s now of people who've done it. And some of them not well. So I think clearly we haven't always gotten the only one. But we think that. We think that being valuable, being important, being special is to be the only one who can do something. And I think Elijah tips his hand a little bit that he's, he does have an issue here when he says, I am the only one of God's prophets left. And again, I'm not speculating. God says later, I have hidden many prophets in other caves and other places. But let's go on. This is what he says. I am the only one of God's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, it is true. Again, he's demonstrating bigger is not better because I am the only one on this mountaintop right now. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of my God, of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. This is a really exciting, special simulcast event, right? We're going to have this really big demonstration of whose God is God. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Even that. He's like, there's a lot of you, so I'll let you go first. But he knows the number of them doesn't matter. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of the Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. What does he say? Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be wakened. By the way, I've read one commentary that says that word deep in thought is a euphemism. It actually means on the toilet. <laughs> the point is God's busy. You need to be loud in order to get his attention. Even here, Elijah is taunting them. He understands God doesn't need you to be loud to get his attention. He's not waiting for the loudest voice to be impressed by. He's not impressed by the loudness of your voice. And Elijah's saying that to the prophets, but he's teasing them. He's taunting them. He must be sleeping. Maybe if you are louder, he'll respond. And all that does is drive them into a frenzy. It says, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed and midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Because no matter how loud they got, there was no God to hear. Their God wasn't there. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. Why does he say that? You know part of why he said that? Because I think he gets quieter. The prophets are all yelling really loud. And he's like, you guys come as close as you can. Because I'm not going to yell. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of weed, of seed, pardon me. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. He's going he's gonna to make it really clear that there's the, the chance of spontaneous combustion is unlikely. 
Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. So he's got a little trench around it. He pours so much water on it that the wood can't even hold the water anymore. It soaked it all up. It is a dry season. There's been no rain for a long time. We know this. So it probably took a lot of water to soak into the wood, then to run off the wood, to run off the stone, and then it fills the little moat that he created around the altar. So lots of water. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Prayed. Not yelled, not shouted, just prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. The prophets yelled and screamed and cut themselves all day. Elijah steps forward. He utters one quick, reasonably quiet prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. Burned up the stones. You didn't miss that, did you? <laughs> That's hot. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So it worked. He went to the people and he said, Choose. And they said nothing. But now he's given this demonstration and there is this spontaneous response. Very reasonable. Baal did nothing. This God replied, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. This is the moment. This is the triumph. It worked. This big public display did everything it should do. And you say, so therefore, louder's better. Let's keep going. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Okay. I don't know exactly what to make of this. It's the idea is he's so excited and he's so filled with God's power that he outruns the chariot. But he's, he's buzzed, right? This is it. It's worked. Everything has succeeded. All the people have turned to God. The entire nation of Israel, the whole culture has been shifted again back towards God. This is a fantastic success. This is an incredible moment. Nothing can stop Elijah now. He's outrunning chariots. And then the most bizarre thing happens. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Let's be honest. This is just meaningless trash talk. No, I mean it. Elijah hears this. What's he just been through? 450 prophets, 400 other prophets, he beat them all. The people were so on his side that they managed to get all those prophets and they were all slaughtered. There's no power in her statement. There's no reason he should be afraid of her. Also, the other thing you don't know, because we didn't read the rest of the story, is he's been at odds with Jezebel and Ahab from the beginning and they've never scared him. He's the one who said, I want to talk to Ahab when Ahab wanted to kill him. He's never been scared of them. And this is the moment you would be least scared of all. This is like, yeah, I can see you're desperate. <laughs> you're so desperate. You're making stupid threats because you see you're losing. In reality, you've already lost. That's how you would expect Elijah to respond at this moment. When he gets yet another threat from a woman who really has no power at this moment. But that's not how Elijah responds. This is what it says. She says, this time tomorrow, 
And she says, may the gods deal with me. The very gods he's just shown don't exist. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And the next line says this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and did what most of us do when we're depressed. He went to sleep. Okay. The question is, what? Why is this the reaction? Elijah has had the greatest public display of victory of his life. He has seen the conversion of enough people to round up 950 enemies and slaughter them. I don't know exactly how many that is, but it's a lot. It's at least 950, I'm guessing. He's seen a conversion of Israel's culture shifting in a huge way. He's seen the eradication of his primary religious opponent. He's been vindicated in front of thousands This is a victory he's probably longed for and dreamed for. And it's right at the moment of this victory that Jezebel makes this empty threat. And he says, I've had enough. Enough what? It's like Donald Trump. He's won so much. He's tired of winning. I don't know. I think that's what he means. The question is this. Something has happened here that makes him think this whole thing was a failure. We read this incredible triumph and Elijah thinks, I failed. I'm no better than my ancestors. Just take my life, God. I have nothing to give and I'm tired. And it's over. Not even like, I'll try again tomorrow. Elijah's been tired before. This is a guy who was fed by ravens for three years. This is a guy who lived in hiding for years. He's been tired before, but now it's like it's over. It's done. He feels like he lost so thoroughly. There's no coming back. He says, I might as well be dead. My whole purpose in life is over. My mission is over because I failed. You got to ask yourself, why on earth is that his response? What was his evaluation of success that led him to conclude this was a failure? Because from the outside, it doesn't look like a failure to us. I think in general, it reminds us that we're terrible at gauging success. We're awful at it. In fact, this is part of the thing we've been talking about the last few weeks. We think bigger is success, but we talked about how that just isn't so. We might be shutting down successful churches in order for the people to go to less successful churches. That's how good we are at gauging where success is. We think faster is success, but that just isn't so. Now we think louder is success. And I think this is where the the, the rub comes for Elijah. There's something about this that wasn't loud enough. It didn't get enough attention, as big as it was. It didn't hold the power he thought it would have. There's something that happened that led him to conclude for everything that had been done, there was one key piece of power that was still left untouched. See, in Elijah's mind, this whole thing we now realize This whole thing was about changing the minds of Ahab and Jezebel. And their minds were not changed. Now, why? Why of all the people in Israel, 
Is he worried about Ahab and Jezebel? They're just two people. Why is he worried about them instead of everybody else whose minds did change? Why are they the gauge of success? Well, there's an obvious reason, right? Because they're the king and the queen. In Elijah's mind, he could have changed the heart of every single Israelite. But if those in the seat of worldly power didn't change their mind, then he feels like it was worthless. Never mind that all the prophets have been slaughtered. Never mind that thousands of people have now turned back to the true God, to Elijah. None of that matters. Because the loudest voice is Jezebel's and not his. And in his mind, if he doesn't change the power, the seat of secular power, if he doesn't become the loudest voice in that sense, then he's failed. And so everything else went perfectly. But Jezebel still doesn't believe. And that's what scared him. That's what made him feel like a failure. When they remained unmoved, it didn't matter everything else that had happened. He felt like he was a failure. You know, there's an interesting corollary about the way we think of power in our country. And, and I want to share this but I do want to caveat just really quickly something. I, I want to make sure that you understand. I, I intentionally um, avoid a lot of poli political discussion from the pulpit. And the reason I do that is because you guys know I believe I'm so thrilled and excited and happy that we have within our church a huge political diversity. I think it shows that we're focused on the right things. I love the fact that there are people who disagree with me about certain political ideas, but agree with me that Jesus is Lord. And one of those things, I've shared this before, so this isn't new, but I want to share a story about this, not to persuade anyone to change their political position, but because I think this is fascinating. I happen to be pro-life. I, I believe that's a really good thing. But we do have within our church people who are pro-choice, and we love them, and they're welcome. And I don't think the most important thing I can do is persuade them to be pro-life like me. I think the most important thing I can do is to persuade them to be pro-Jesus like me. I think the most important thing I can do is to persuade them to follow Jesus. Because if they're following Jesus, even if I in my heart of hearts believe that will ultimately lead them to pro-life, that's fine. But if it doesn't, as long as they're following Jesus, I know they're where they should be. And I can live with being wrong about the rest. So I'm not going to share what I'm going to share this evening in order to convince you you should be pro-life. That's not the point of this story. So don't run off by the fact that I use, I'm using the words pro-life here for a moment, okay? But I want to share something about the pro-life movement that's fascinating to me, and it says something about how we understand power and success, and it's very similar to what Elijah went through. Here's the truth. Here's the facts. Here's the numbers. Ever since Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, abortions in our country declined every year for four decades. The number of abortions declined every year for four decades. Not only that, but the sentiments about abortion became increasingly more pro-life for four decades. So much so that even President Clinton, who was the Democrat's Democrat, said that he wanted abortions to be, yes, safe and legal, but he also said he wanted them to be exceedingly rare. It's true that in our country for four decades, our country consistently and increasingly made the statement in every poll that people wanted fewer abortions, period. 
In other words, the pro-life movement was seeing success year after year. Now, Roe v. Wade wasn't overturned, and I understand if your position is there should be no abortions. I'm, I'm for that. But if you're moving in a direction of fewer and fewer, that's the direction you want to be moving, if you want none. But for years, the pro-life movement, many of them didn't even know these stats or notice that they were succeeding. Why? Because the seat of power, the judicial system, didn't agree with them. Because the law didn't agree. Okay, but that's not where the story ends. As you all know, Roe v. Wade got overturned recently. Now, it's too early to know what the trends of abortions are. Some people will tell you abortions have declined a lot. Some people will tell you abortions have progressed. Some people will tell you it's too early, and that's where I sit. It's too early to know what the trends are. Maybe there will be more. Maybe there will be less. But you know what we do know? The sentiment of the country has become increasingly more pro-choice since Roe v. Wade was overturned. For four decades, we made progress in the hearts and minds of people and the minute that we had the power, suddenly, as we begin to utilize it in state after state after state, the result is that the country is increasingly less pro-life than they were when we didn't have the power. And I just think it goes to show that we thought if we had the political power, we would win. But that doesn't appear to be how it worked. That doesn't appear to be how it's working. It's early yet, but it doesn't appear to be how it's working. And I think this is just one example of many that we, like Elijah, we think unless we change the minds of the famous people and the powerful people, then we lose. It doesn't matter if a million people have their minds and hearts changed. If those aren't the people who are the rich and famous, then we're losing. How much more excited do we get? I know when someone is famous and powerful and they become a believer, it vindicates us. We feel smarter, we feel safer, and we feel better that that powerful person has received Christ. But what about when your neighbor down the street does? What about that homeless guy on the street does? Do, do we see that as less valuable? Sadly, I think we do. Because we have a notion like Elijah that all that matters is we've got to change Jezebel's heart. But what's interesting is that apparently wasn't God's plan. God was more concerned about everybody than he was about the queen. In fact, how does God correct Elijah when he hits this moment? First thing, I'm not going to get into it, but I want to mention it because it is important. You can find my other sermon somewhere online or wait someday. I'll preach it again if you want to hear it. But the first thing God notably does is he just feeds Elijah. He, he gives him rest. He encourages him. He sympathizes with him. He says, I know, you're, I know it's hard. I know this is too much for you. That's what we're not going to talk about tonight, but he does do that. But then he tells Elijah to go on a pilgrimage. He sends him on a 40-day pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the place of the biggest, most public display of God's power that the Israelites had ever seen, where he went on the mountain. The mountain shook, and he gave them the law. He says, go on a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai. You'll find some answers there. And I can only imagine that Elijah's like, Mount Sinai, this is going to be big. This is going to be loud. Maybe when I get there, Jezebel will meet me there. And God will spank her, and then we'll all be good. <laughs> so he takes this 40-day pilgrimage, and he heads off to Mount 
Horeb, it may say in your text, but it's Mount Sinai. Oh, sorry. Don't want to read that yet. Don't read that yet. Okay. Okay. And the word of the Lord came to him. So when he gets there, God says, interestingly enough, why are you here? <laughs> it's just what God does. He asks questions he knows the answers to. But, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Notice how he reiterates, I'm the only one left. We're not going to read it, but this is where one of these moments is where God says to him, actually, you knucklehead, I got a bunch. I got a bunch. I have preserved the prophets. They're all hiding. I got a bunch. But I want you to think back to, to the point where he said, I am no better than my ancestors. You know what I think God's answer to that would have been if God weren't at that moment just being kind and sympathetic and giving Elijah a chance without rebuke? You know what I think he would have said to him? You're right. Whoever said you were? See, Elijah had this thing in his head. Again, I am the only prophet left. I can do what my ancestors didn't do. I can be the big hero to save everybody. I have the loud enough voice. I have a powerful enough persuasion. I can do what they didn't do. What he's bummed out about is just that he's just like everyone else. There's something in here where God is trying to say to him, you are not less valuable or less worthwhile to me. See, God affirms his value when he feeds him, when he encourages him, when he lets him sleep, when he loves him. But I think God is also saying to him, you're not less valuable to me because you're no better than your ancestors. Because they were valuable to me too, you knucklehead. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Oh, this is a good moment. You're on Mount Sinai, right? When God passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, it like made Moses' face glow. It was a big, big deal. And the mountain shook and there was, there was thunder, says Hebrews, and there was fire. I mean, it was a big, big thing. So here he is. He's like, why are you here? And Elijah's still whining. And God says, go on the mountain. I'm going to meet you there. And Elijah's like, Yes. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Let's, let's stipulate something for a moment. There is a sense in which God is in all those things. Even the fact that God is using those things to say to Elijah, I'm not in those things, means that he caused those things. <laughs> I understand that. There is a sense in which God is in everything, but God is giving a very clear message to Elijah that you only hear me in, mount, in winds and earthquakes and fires and that's not how I'm coming to you. And by God's grace, Elijah hears the whisper and knows it's God. He is able at this moment to recognize 
He's not in the wind, and he's not in the thunder. He's not in the fire. He's not in the earthquake. All things, by the way, that are described in Hebrews as being part of Mount Sinai. When God did come in those ways. And the fire is really relevant to him because he just had a big experience where God was in the fire. But not now. God says, I'm hearing a gentle whisper. I need you to understand that sometimes I come softly. And if you aren't listening for me to come softly and you insist that I only come in big ways, you're going to miss out. Let's be honest. A baby born in a cave in Bethlehem or born in a guest room in Bethlehem is not particularly loud. I know mothers are like, yes, they are, but not particularly even at that grand moment when the Messiah came, the big hero came, yeah, there were angels. They sang to a few shepherds on a field and they're the only ones who heard him, heard the angels. I mean, they sang loud, but not really. <laughs> they sang soft, only to a few. And when it came to the kings, the kings only heard from a few weary travelers and only because the king requested they come, not even because they made an effort to go. Palm Sunday was loud. And it barely mattered. Good Friday was quiet. And it changed the world. Jesus' resurrection wasn't announced with trumpets and simulcast news events. It was announced with a, hi, Mary. And a, I am he. And it was passed from disciple to disciple quietly. You realize nobody saw the stone rolled away? We're told an angel did it. That must have been kind of a cool thing. And nobody saw it. We only saw that it had been. The church has moved forward through history, through the years, not primarily through political power and celebrity pastors, but through quiet men and women whose names you and I don't even know. In fact, there's a pretty good argument to be made at this point that most moments of history when the church and political power were combined together were periods that moved us backwards rather than forwards. There's a pretty good argument to be made that the same is true of most celebrity pastors. How many times has a celebrity pastor fallen into sin and we felt that has brought disrepute upon the entire church? I don't want to be silly, but you do realize that when a pastor of 75 sins there's more room for him to find restoration and forgiveness and recovery. And it doesn't hurt the church at all <laughs> because nobody knows except those people to whom it matters. It's fair to at least wonder if our approach to the idea that the loudest voice wins is just flat wrong. I think it is. I think we see too often the connection in our culture being loud is really important. We now live in a culture where everybody is inundated with how important it is to make sure that people hear every thought you have. Go to Twitter. Tell people what you had for dinner. Go to Facebook. Tell people what your thought on this obscure thing that no one cares about is and see if you can get other people to also share their obscure thoughts that you don't care about. 
Go on Instagram and show pictures of every single moment of your life. How dare you have a moment of your life that nobody knows or sees? Visibility is everything. And it isn't just that it happens. It is indeed that we're told it is the value of our culture. Influencers are important. Likes are what tell you your value. The number of followers you have. It used to only be pastors who got together and said, how big is your church? And the numbers were suddenly the most important thing. Now everybody does it. How many followers do you have? It's like we can't have an important moment. It's not important unless we share it with the largest number of people. You know, many of the most important moments in my life, at least seven of them, happened when it was pretty much just me and my wife and a few other people who I don't remember their names or who they were, and they just happened to be there to help my wife give birth. I'm not one of those guys who videotapes those. And if I had... I would not show them to you. Those were important. I don't care if you saw them. I don't care if you know about them. Those moments were important. And I think they were important to my kids. Pretty sure. Being born? Yeah. 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 As long as they don't know if they weren't. Here's the deal. First Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. I love this. Paul is writing the Thessalonians. He's encouraging them they're doing well. But kind of the theme of Thessalonians. So, so some books are like, you guys are not doing well. Here's how you can maybe improve a little bit. Thessalonians, the theme of the book is you guys are doing well, do better. Okay, it's a really, if you want to think of a book which is like, keep at it, you're doing, you know, a real pep talk. This is Thessalonians. Thessalonians, he says several times, do so even more. The thing you're doing well, keep doing some translations, it says, excel still more. That's a lot of Thessalonians. You guys are doing great. I love you. Do better. Now, he does it in a gentle way. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think he's trying to be demoralizing. But that's the tone of Thessalonians. But I want you to know that as we read this, because I want you to know this is not a laid back book. This is a book of do better. Okay? He comes up at one point and he says, you guys are loving each other well. Which is a big thing to say at any church. You're loving each other well. And he follows it up with, do better. <laughs> Love each other even more. And then he says this. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now listen to this next line. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The word ambition and quiet life might be a little jarring in your head right? Ambition is about doing something big. And in our world, in our culture, if you're ambitious to do something big, it doesn't matter unless other people see it. So it should be loud. I love Stephen Curtis Chapman. He has a song called Live Out Loud. I'm not picking on him, but it fits our culture really well. Live out loud. Be big. And here Paul says, make it your ambition. Not even just like yeah, it just happened to live a quiet life. He's saying, make it your goal. Make it your ambition. Be passionate about leading a quiet life. I love this. You should mind your own business. You know, people love to proof text. This is a, this is a scripture I just love to pull out proof text and throw at people all the time. They're like getting in my business. I'm like, Paul says, mind your business. You should mind your own business. 
and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life, the stuff you do that no one sees, the stuff you do that isn't famous, the stuff you do because you're just leading a quiet life, that this daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Make it your ambition to be unnoticed, to be invisible. That doesn't sound like what we should do with the gospel. Make it your ambition to at least be less noticeable. Mind your own business. Take care of the people around you. Contribute to your society with your gifts. Maybe you don't work with your hands. Don't be discouraged. Some of us work with our hands, some don't. But the point is, people who work with their hands are often discarded as unimportant people because they're just doing things that are small and quiet. And he's saying, whatever gifts your gifts are that are small and quiet, do them. Be people of character and strength so that the people around you, when he says so that outsiders will respect you, there's not a chance, not a chance at all, not even a smidgen of a chance that any of the Thessalonians would have thought what Paul meant was live your life in such a quiet way that millions of outsiders across the world will respect you. No, they understood him to mean the outsiders that live where you live. The outsiders that are part of your quiet daily life. Let them respect you because of your character and your strength. Don't be ambitious to be famous and loud. Isn't it an interesting conundrum of our culture that so many people who are famous are not respected by their families? Because they're focused on one and not the other. It's interesting that Paul says, this is what we are to be. People who live a quiet life. I really think this is hard for us because so much in our culture and so much in us says that we are not important if we are not seen by lots and lots of people. And we think our church isn't doing good work if we're not seen by lots and lots of people. And Paul says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, a less noticed life. Mind your own business. Work hard. Serve the people around you. And if you win the respect of those who see you, you're doing it right. But that's not millions or hundreds of thousands or even thousands in this case, or even hundreds. Here's the issue. I think we have some idols that I'm putting under the term louder. We as individuals in the church, and I think a lot of these idols are huge in our culture. I think every culture has idols that kind of are cultural idols that are hard to see because we're so immersed in them. We don't think there's anything wrong with them. And in fact, as is the nature of idols, we think they're important and valuable and helpful. And here's the idols of louder. I just want to very briefly give you some thoughts. Number one, fame as a replacement for eternity. Why are we so keyed into people knowing who we are? Why does Facebook bring up our memories to remind us how long we've been on Facebook? Why is it that we are so eager to make sure, again, that every thought we have and every action we take is seen and noticed by so many people? It's an interesting thing. Ecclesiastes 3, 11 through 12 says this. 
God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. This phrase, he has placed eternity in the human heart. He says later, this is a great burden upon man. Because our bodies are decaying, but eternity has been placed in our heart. We have this desire for eternity. And as our culture has increasingly denied the reality of anything that isn't material, and as our culture has increasingly said, there is no spiritual eternity. We have had to seek ways to satisfy this desire for eternity in ways that fit with our culture that says you die. And there's nothing after that. And so what do we do? We get this idea of legacy. We want to become something that will last, that people will remember. Solomon struggled with this. He said, I wanted to build a legacy that would last forever. He ultimately concluded it's dumb, it's stupid, it's meaningless, because when you're dead, you don't even know. That's what he says. It's a pretty good point. But how often is that what people are pursuing? I'll be honest. I feel this drive. I have this struggle. I want to be important. I want to be remembered after I'm gone. And I realize what I'm about to say is wrong. But I want to be remembered by more than my family. I want to be remembered throughout ages. I want to be remembered because there is this illusion of, of, of eternity in that, isn't there? How often in pop culture is this even the way we deal with death? You know, you're watching a show and somebody dies and they're trying to give you some reason in this show to be hopeful and happy. And it always comes down to this. If they don't believe in any existence after death, it always comes down to as long as you're in people's hearts and as long as they remember you, you're alive. But that's just nonsense. I mean, really, it's nonsense. Like Solomon says, you don't care when you're dead if people remember you. I I, I don't want to... I don't want to say there isn't value for you in your memories of people who have died. There's comfort for you in that. But if you're dead, there's no comfort for you in that. But it's where we go. And if I can think, well, as long as people remember me, then there's, I'm still around, then what is better than making sure that everybody in the world remembers you forever? There is a sort of immortality to William Shakespeare, right? That's what I want. I want people 300 years later to say David McGill's name and have them wonder if I was really me or if I was actually Laureen McGill just using my name. That's a Shakespeare joke for anyone who cares. I want that. But William Shakespeare's dead. His eternity isn't based upon that. So I think because we've done away with eternity with the sense of actually that death is a door to eternity, because we don't like that in our culture, we've replaced it with fame. Can I just get enough people to know me? So maybe it can feel like eternity if I catalog every moment of my life and put it on the internet. It'll feel like eternity to those of us reading it. <laughs> Other people's evaluation becomes a replacement for God's. You know, it's interesting that he says at the beginning of this, before he says eternity is in our hearts, he says everything, God made everything beautiful in its time. That's not enough for us. 
God says, I made you beautiful. God says, I think you're beautiful. God says, I value you enough to die for you. God says, I would rather die than live a life without you. But none of that's enough for us. God's evaluation is that you are worthwhile. But we really need other people to tell us we're worthwhile. I think this has probably always been a human issue. But in our age of social media and likes and stars and ratings, it has skyrocketed, I think, how important this is for us. It is very difficult. It's very difficult for us in our culture to not replace God's evaluation in our lives with the need to have other people evaluate us as worthy. But the problem is they live in the same culture we do and they have learned that you're only worthy if you're famous. If your voice is loud. Power as a replacement for holiness. This is really interesting to me. We've talked about holiness a little bit just to remind you what, what holiness is like. Holiness is an otherness. It means that God is unlike anybody else. And there is power in that holiness. We're told that there's that the part of his holiness is his power, but it's power unlike anybody else. And instead of being holy as Christians, instead of seeking that otherness, instead we seek to be powerful in the same way that everybody else around us seeks to be powerful. We're seeking sameness in our power, not holiness. Jesus says some really interesting things about our understanding of power. And we have a choice when you hear these words. You can say, Jesus didn't really mean it. Or Jesus doesn't understand life in 21st century America. Or you can say, I guess I ought to wrestle with this because this is not what I see around me. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the quiet, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. And if you don't hear that verse and don't wrestle with it, you're probably not being honest and taking it seriously. He says, blessed are you when people insult you. <laughs> I don't like being insulted. <laughs> There's something here. There's something in all of this. Every one of these, the only one of these that can even potentially become from the powerful is the ability to show mercy. But all of the rest of these are not things that describe powerful people. There's things that describe the other end of the spectrum. The people without access, the people who aren't loud, the people without visibility, the people without fame, the people without influence. And God says, those are the people that are the children of God. The, the, they own the kingdom of heaven. They'll inherit the earth. All of these things that we think of as power come from this place of no power. We applaud Christians for being famous and powerful more than we applaud them for being full of integrity and faithfulness. Think about the last time you heard of a Christian who had ascended to some role of power and heard somebody say, that's so awesome. And think about the last time you heard somebody say, that guy over there is just faithful and heard somebody say, that's so awesome. We should, 
We feel better knowing that the powerful can be Christians. But we should feel much better knowing that Christians are faithful. There's two men in my life that I have admired. I mean, there's more than two, but I want to give you a contrast between two. There's two men in my life that I've admired. One I knew personally, the other I didn't. One I knew personally is, personally is a man named Herschel Martindale. A man I didn't know personally is a man named Rabbi Zacharias. Rabbi Zacharias I admired till the day he died. Then the day he died, it was revealed he was neither faithful nor full of integrity. He had been abusive. He had been a predator. And Herschel Martindale is somebody that most of you have never heard of. But the day he died, it turned out he'd been exactly what he looked like. And I realized now how much more impressed I am by Herschel than by Rabbi. And how it should have been that way all along. Faithfulness should be more important than volume. Again, we require uniqueness like Elijah did. We want to be able to say we're better than our ancestors. We want to be able to say we're the only one. Without us, God doesn't have a chance. But what if you simply are special because God created you beautifully? What if the only uniqueness you actually need is in your relationship with him? And what if that uniqueness is never seen by anyone else? Can you live with that? Because the reality is you can't live without that. Fame is an idol which prevents us from really seeing the beauty of what God has made in us, whether other people see it or not. Power is an idol which becomes a replacement for the otherness that we get by following God. And worldly power is a scramble to be like others, only bigger and louder. God's power comes from his holiness and his otherness. Worldly power is controlling. Godly power is holiness in serving others. I was thinking about this. I think in some ways power is, is it's, it's funny because we think of power as being such an important thing. But when we're seeking worldly power, we're really just an ant in an anthill seeking power over those other ants. And God looks down at the anthill and goes, what are you guys fighting about? Anger is an idol, is a replacement for actual conviction in ourselves or others. Sometimes instead of actually coming to settled, convicted beliefs about what's right, we substitute it with just anger about what's wrong because it's easier. Because if you're angry, you don't have to look too hard at whether you yourself are doing the things that you're angry about. If you're convicted, that means you have to apply to yourself the same standard. So anger becomes a replacement for conviction, but it also becomes a replacement for conviction in others. Instead of trying to convince other people's what's, people what's true, we simply yell at them. We simply demean them. And yet we're told by God that human anger will never bring about the righteousness that God desires. Demanding respect as a replacement for respectable character we have an idol where we demand respect. We want respect. Respect becomes the idol. You know, God nowhere in Scripture says make sure people respect you. Nowhere. Nowhere. Nowhere does God say 
Make sure that those people that I've told should respect you, respect you. He doesn't tell pastors, make sure your congregation respects you. He doesn't tell husbands, make sure your wives respect you. He doesn't tell mothers, make sure your kids respect you. He doesn't tell government leaders, make sure your, your citizens respect you. He never ever says your job is to make sure people respect you. You know what he does say? He says, pastors be men of respectable character. Husbands, be husbands of respectable character. Moms, be moms of respectable character. Officials, be officials of respectable character. But we put respect above being respectable. And all we're left with is these empty demands. Here's what I think about the church. I think God is leading us to slower, softer, smaller. I know I said it in the wrong order. It's all the same. I know God is leading us to smaller, slower, softer. There we go. I really believe that. I'm not a prophet, and I'm making no prophetic claims this evening. But my prediction is based upon the grace of God. That is, that I think he wants his church to be successful in America, and I think he's pruning us. I think he's judging us in a really healthy way. I think he's disciplining us and weeding us. This is why so many churches are struggling so much. This is why being a pastor is so hard. This is why celebrity pastors are failing at a crazy rate. My prediction, based upon the grace of God, that he wants not to punish us, but to prune us and make us grow again. And based upon what I do see happening around us, is that I think these things will be true of the church going forward. As we learn to be smaller and slower and softer, I think we will become less. And Christ will become more. John says that at one point. People said, how do you say to John? John had a big following. And they said to him, how do you feel about the fact that your following is all going to Jesus? And John said, peachy. <laughs> he said, just great. He, he wasn't demeaning himself when he says this. He was talking literally about the purpose of his ministry. He says, I don't want people following me. I should become less so that Christ becomes more. Imagine if every pastor in the world had this attitude, not demeaning themselves, but recognizing the purpose of their ministry, that they should become less visible so that Christ would become more visible. I think this is going to happen. I think the church will become less visible as God weans us away from our addiction to celebrity, as God weans us away from our addiction to bigger and faster and louder. I think it's true the church will become less visible. And I can hear the screams of so many church growth experts and pastors and friends that I have out there saying, if we're less visible, that's bad. And I say, no, because our visibility has only brought dishonor to Jesus. But what if we become less visible and Christ becomes more visible? What if in our soft and quiet ways we build men and women who follow the Lord? And as they do, their influence upon the outsiders in their world, as they're living their quiet lives and, and, and doing their hard work, that the outsiders around them We'll see Jesus. And they may or may not understand where the churches that used to be big on the street corner went. They may even think for years that the churches have disappeared. And I don't care. As long as they understand that Jesus did not disappear. I think we will become more holy. We will become more other. We will be different, not for the sake of different 
but because we truly will be different. And that will make us more effective and people may not even notice. See, I think where we're headed is a really powerful, effective church that people barely even realize is working. When they do notice, what they'll notice is the right person, Jesus, not us. I think this is where the church is going. I think in 20 or 30 years, it will appear to people who are not in the church that the church has become almost nothing. But for the growing numbers of people in their small communities, in these churches, we will know. We will know that Jesus is taking over America again, but not in the way we thought he was going to. Not through politics and journalism and education, but through people who have this strange and other and holy ambition to lead a quiet life. I just want to close, and I know I went late and leaders meeting is going to be a little bit late, but they'll survive. They're leaders. They know how to serve. So I just want to give a really quick tribute. I mentioned that there are more than two men that I've admired in my life. Another one that I don't know is Tim Keller. He also died recently. And I'm going to take the moment as, as far as I know, and I believe there won't be any revelations coming out. If they are, the words I'm going to tell you don't change. But that's the world we live in. I'm, I'm always waiting for the shoe to drop, and that's unfortunate. But I believe for a lot of reasons that, that Tim Keller will stand the test of time. And it's because he was a weird sort of celebrity pastor who did everything he could, I think, to push back against the celebrity of being loud and being famous. One thing he did is even before it was fashionable, uh, first of all, he didn't actually have a large church. He didn't create a large church and he didn't set out to create one. Initially, his church was about 250, which is the size of the church that I was pastoring uh, at uh, at Rio West, we were about 250, so we were about the same. I know what that's like. And he really wasn't looking to make the church bigger, and then 9-11 happened. And literally, when 9-11 happened, he had thousands of people in his church the next Sunday. He had to figure out what to do with them. And what he did with them was he planted multiple churches across the, the city. And he said, he also planted in a place that every megachurch pastor said, you'll never get a megachurch. And he said, Okay. <laughs> but he planted multiple campuses across the, across the city instead of planting one big one. And he did this because he wanted to not be, he wanted to be less so that Christ would be more. And he knew that if he was the center of a megachurch, it would be very difficult for him not to be more and not to be noticeable. So he planted multiple church plants to avoid a megachurch approach. Second thing I think is interesting that he did was he had this thing. He rotated. He was a great teacher. He could have been and was to some degree well-known for his teaching, but that could have been, as a megachurch pastor, he could have been huge on that alone. But what he did do is even when he had church plants, he rotated with all a bunch of other teachers from church to church to church. And what he did is he never told people where he would be on a given Sunday so that nobody would be tempted to follow him from church to church to church so that it couldn't become about him so that it would become about Jesus. We've also been told that he refused to do photo shoots and anytime people did an article on him, it used to drive them nuts. 
they would say, we need a good picture. And he'd say, here's some family pictures. <laughs> if you have to have one, grab one from here. I've written a book or two. He didn't write books till late in life either, by the way. He was 58 or 59 before he wrote his first book that sold at all. So he did things to actively push against becoming more visible. He flaunt, flouted the whole idea of being louder. God granted him respect and influence and persuasion. And he worked in the midst of all that to make himself less. And because of that, I believe, he died a man of integrity and faithfulness. Because I think the biggest thing about Tim Keller, and he drew a lot of heat in the last couple of years, precisely because he did this, he focused on the fact that he belonged to Christ and to no other tribe. Republicans found him progressive and liberal because he refused to sign off on everything they said. Democrats found him conservative and stodgy because he refused to sign off on everything they said. And he was fond of saying, Christianity is not about finding the middle ground. It's about finding the holy ground, the other ground, the place where Jesus is, which because it's Jesus will inevitably mean it won't fit in any other tribe. His devotion to Christ is what made him who he was. That's what we build in churches that are smaller and slower and softer. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.